Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. Prior to arriving in Australia, Richard Carroll had only tentatively contemplated a career in the theatre. His showbiz participation had consisted of school productions and writing questions for quiz programs in the UK. Casting and production experiences in television followed, providing him with essential skills to navigate creative roles as writer, producer and director. Carol is one of Australia's leading proponents of the musical and is a founding member of the Hayes Theatre Company in Sydney, an organisation dedicated to the celebration and preservation of the musical and cabaret forms. His impressive list of credits as producer or writer include Everybody Loves Lucy, Julie Madly Deeply and Sweet Charity, the production that alerted the industry that something special was happening at the Hayes. As a director, his highly successful production of Calamity Jane, starring Virginia Gay, played throughout Australia, delighting audiences with a new look at an old favourite. Other shows seeing Carol at the helm include Spamalot, Gypsy, An Act of God, Once and Sideshow, an array of product exploring classical Broadway fare and contemporary works. In November, he directs the iconic Oklahoma for the Black Swan Theatre Company in Perth. You can also find Richard in a back catalogue of episodes for his podcasts at The Hayes and every musical ever. Today, you'll find him on stages, reflecting on his journey to Australia and the theatrical delights he has discovered and contributed to. Do, do you remember the, the first musical you encountered? Well, the first live musical, uh, apart from watching Pantos as a small child, because I was... We grew up in the UK, so that was very much part of my childhood. In North London? Uh, yeah, I was born in North London. Then when I was seven, we moved to the country, so to like Bedfordshire, um, which is about an hour out of London. So definitely pantos all through, you know, as long as I can remember. And then the first like West End show that I saw was Les Mis when I was seven, I think. Right. So yeah. okay, let's talk about pantos, go uh-huh. down that rabbit hole for a minute, because yeah. that's a very English sort of um, mm-hmm. entertainment, isn't it? Yes, and uh, it's been a big influence on me, I think, you know, certainly subconsciously and sometimes consciously. Well, yeah, I hope so. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later with Calamity Jane, mm-hmm. I think, because mm-hmm. you can see pantomime influences yeah, there, which definitely. is fantastic. Yeah. So it's an annual event or it happens throughout the year? Always at Christmas, right. yeah. And so they generally now will start in late November and stretch through till January to cram as many people as possible. And yeah, they will do nine or ten shows a week at least, sometimes up to like 14, like crazy work schedules. Um, and there's a lot of money in it for actors. Um, so um, a lot of performers who might be like ex-soap stars or the like, and Australian soap stars as well, who might have been on things that are shown in the UK, they will do pantos for maybe five, six weeks at Christmas, and that will get them enough income for the rest of the year because they're so popular. And you just do so many performances in such big houses. And so it's a really weird kind of like unique... And they're all the popular narratives too, I guess, yeah. the, the fairy tales. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much exclusively, I won't be able to remember all of them, but, you know, there's Snow White, there's Sleeping Beauty, there's Aladdin. Dick uh, Whittington. Dick Whittington, yeah. Um, uh, Widow Twanky, is that Aladdin? Widow Twanky's from right. Aladdin, right. correct, yes. Obviously very sort of authentic Middle Eastern narrative. Um, <laughs> Peter Pan is one now. So, you know, obviously Peter Pan, the play, has been adapted into a pantomime version. Um and then there's Babes in the Wood, which weirdly is like a Robin Hood story, um, but they could we call it Babes in the Wood. So all this stuff that's just evolved over years, and you know when something's just so ingrained in culture, and you just see it from a young child, you just take it for granted. And then yeah. when you try and explain it to people from other cultures, you're like, 
Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't know why that happens. I don't. It doesn't really make any sense. But and cross gender yeah. casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you always have the the dame is always played by a man, and the dame being sort of a principal older female, normally the mother of the main character, um, um, or sometimes the villain like the Wicked Queen Snow White. Um, no, and the ugly stepsisters. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the principal boy is is pretty much always played by a woman. So yeah. Ten o'clock and still no dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the thing. Those kind of double entendres are such a part of it. And again, people are so shocked. What do you mean? These are for children. But there's all these jokes about, yeah, dick and things like that. Yeah. Jokes, jokes for mums and dads. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great. And Bonnie Lithgow, of course, trying to get to the mm-hmm. pantomime mm-hmm. Uh, genre off the ground here. Which She's been fantastic. doing them for several years here now, yeah. And I think people here... I mean, Trevor Ash has been doing like adult pantos. Absolutely. So there's yeah. those kinds of things, which also do exist in the UK. But yeah, Bonnie's doing those good old-fashioned sort of British kids pantos, and she does them. She does them here in winter. So, which is always a weird thing because, of course, we always do it in winter, which is Christmas. And so, I think she had to make a call of like, do I do it at Christmas or I do it in winter? And she was like, well, I would do it in winter because that's when you want to take people to indoor activities. So, yeah, I guess people throughout the year associate certain. Um seasons with a particular activity and that's mm. certainly what Christmas and, and the yeah. Panto was in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, oh, fantastic. <laughs> so back to back to that original question about um, Pantos and mm-hmm. then Les Mis. Yeah. So my mum and dad went to see Les Mis about a year before they took us, so it would have been open a year maybe or... Did you see the Barbican or that original? No, it would have been in, at the Palace, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um... And so they had seen it and they had bought the cassette tape. And, you know, we were like, we're not a massive theatre going family. And so the fact that they had been to see it was a big thing. They went to see it because it was the big show. And that was their sort of annual outing to the theatre. And they bought the cassette tape. And then we listened to it over and over in the car. And so we got to know the music really, really well. And then they took myself and my older sister um, about a year later to go and see it. Which, looking back, is kind of weird that that was the first show we went to see. But, you know, it was just... We loved the music and it was just, you know, it was such a massive sort of cultural um, event. And so, yeah, we went. I remember sitting up in the balcony and just being totally spellbound by it. don't think I really followed what was going on. You know, going back and revisiting as an adult, I'm like, oh, is that what happened at yeah, that yeah, point? Yeah. And especially the parts that we had the cassette tape that only had the edited highlights. So the stuff that I had that was missing from the version I'd listened to over and over, I was like, like the whole prologue was not on it. All the stuff, oh... That's why he was in prison. Oh, I didn't really I didn't understand. Yeah. But it didn't really make any difference to me. I just love the spectacle of it and the drama and the music. So. And it's still around. It certainly is. <laughs> certainly is, yeah. But I think it's the, 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 the masterful um, activity of those two, two the composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, what, ten great pop songs mm-hmm. in the show, mm-hmm. which are immediate, an immediate hook. Yeah, and then they just get recycled in different ways with different lyrics. Yeah. So musicals are a, a huge part of tourist economies in London and New York and very much a commercial product mm-hmm. in Australia. What is it about musicals that make them such popular entertainments, do you think? Yeah, it's really... I've, I've asked myself this question so much, you know, like, what is it about musicals that draw people in? Because I, it's the same, I'm an audience member who loves musicals as much as someone who loves making musicals. I don't really have... Um, a really solid answer except just the power of, of music and the power of storytelling you know sort of combined and, and they sort of multiply by each other 
Um, and I think those are two really fundamental things that we respond to as humans. And that um, old adage that you can go in and turn your brain off is not necessarily the case. No, I don't think so. I don't think that that's what people do. Even if you're seeing something that you might think of as relatively sort of, um, you know, very commercial and sort of pappy that's not that deep, um, I still don't think we go to turn our brains off. I think that we, you know, go to be in completely engaged and in, enthralled in something, whether even if it is just spectacle or even if it is just, you know, a silly story, we want to be completely engaged by that and it, it takes us away from you know the worries of the world but you're only going to be taken away from those worries if you're really engaged with what's going on well an extraordinary example at the moment i think is come from away Mm. which is proving to be a very popular uh, entertainment but uh, people have to go in and and they're absolutely engaged and absorbed by the storytelling yeah and the success of that in melbourne is so encouraging because that's something that's very difficult in australia where we don't have you know like the west end or broadway where you can sit shows down and let them sort of grow and word of mouth and really pump a lot of marketing money into them to try and draw audiences in um and, you know, they really took a risk by putting Come From Way and Bookie into the theatre for a long time and just letting it grow through word of mouth, and it really paid off, which mm. is really awesome. Mm. And um, I'm talking to a fellow podcaster, of course, <laughs> Every Musical Ever, mm. in which you celebrate various iconic works. Yeah. Um, is the podcast still happening? Well, like, it's on an extended hiatus. Um, I should really get back to it, shouldn't I? I just, uh, it sort of dropped off because I was just so busy over the last kind of year to year and a half. But I do love doing it. Um, so, no, it's, it's not over, but it's um, it's on a hiatus. But you can find all of the old uh, episodes still on iTunes and yeah, other places. Yeah, every musical ever. Mm. Uh, and you talk to various people um, about mm-hmm. their favourite shows, yeah? Or, yeah, well, when I... Or dissect a piece or Yeah, when, when I started, I wanted to keep the concept really simple so that um, it would encourage me to keep going without having to you know like try and reinvent it all the time so the concept is just that we just pick a musical on each episode and we talk about it and it's kind of no more uh, specified than that and um and i have a different guest or guests on each episode and so um they were mostly to start off with people that um you know i know or have worked with and have good relationships with and then as it went on i was able to um poach some people who actually had started listening to the podcast like lee sales julia zamiro who people i didn't know but they started listening to the podcast and then they would tweet about it and i'd be like hey do you want to come on an episode so that was um really great kind of way of evolving brilliant Mm. Now, I know everybody hates the question, what's your favourite musical? Because it's just so difficult to answer. So, because he recently celebrated his 90th birthday, I'm going to say, what's your favourite Sondheim musical? Okay. Um, hmm. I don't have an immediate answer for that. I mean, I love Sondheim. I th- who doesn't? I came to him quite late. So, um, I don't feel like I have the same sort of um, gut attachment to him as I do for, like, Rodgers and Hammerstein or even Bubble and Schoenberg. But I would say my favourite Sondheim is... It might be Merrily We Roll Along, actually. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that's just because that's a show that I saw. I saw the National Theatre Live broadcast of the uh, Many a Chocolate Factory production. With Maria Friedman. Yeah, it was directed mm. by Maria Friedman. Um, and I didn't know anything about it going in, except for, like, I'd heard a couple of the songs. Um, and I knew that it was, you know, a problem musical that flopped on Broadway and wasn't really ever done. And so I sort of went in going, like, oh, this will be interesting to watch, but it's probably not going to be that great. And I was just totally enthralled by it. And so... So you got it. Yeah. You followed it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, sometimes, like, any piece of any piece of art, like a movie or an album, you know, if you don't know anything about it going in, you go with no expectations and you're really engaged by it, I think it can hold a special place. So I'll go for that one. 
You're a founding member of the Hayes Theatre Company, mm. an organisation which celebrates uh, the musical form and cabaret mm-hmm. in, uh, based in Sydney, in um, Potts Point. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the Hayes and, and, and what's the, um, how did it all begin? So this, the building, the theatre space that we are in was the home of the Darling House Theatre Company for many years. And um, in about oh, I don't know, 2012 or 13, um, City of Sydney were uh, renovating the Eternity Playhouse, um, the old Burton Street Tabernacle, to be the new home for the Darling House Theatre Company. And so there was a debate about what would happen to their old space. And... To their credit, the City of Sydney decided they wanted it to remain a theatre space, and so they asked for submissions of interest uh, for people to take it over. And a group of, of producers, including um, myself, who were all people who did small-scale musical theatre or cabaret at various venues around Sydney and who sort of knew each other to a greater or lesser degrees already, got together and formed an entity that we just called Independent Musical Theatre to start with. And... Um, I guess it was difficult to find spaces for that the, the yeah. work that you were producing. And yeah. um, we, you know, there was we would sometimes do shows at Seymour Centre, or um, there was a sidetrack theatre, um, or occasionally. Oh, might do some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you know might do something larger scale, the Opera House or the State Theatre, but that there, there was no there's nowhere that had that was a home for musical theatre and where we knew that musical theatre audiences would say like oh I go there to see musical theatre except for you know the Capitol or the Lyric or those enormous commercial houses and so that's what we really wanted to do and so we kind of none of us had run a venue before we're all producers so we all got together and formed this little not-for-profit that existed on paper and put in our submission and to our kind of amazement we were given uh, given the lease to the space and we had about six months notice to go in which is not a lot when you have to put together an entire system of running a venue and also start programming shows. So we really didn't have any idea what we were living ourselves in for, which is, I think, a positive because we probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have signed up for it in retrospect. Not that it hasn't been an absolute joy, but it's uh, we've learned a huge Well, there's amount. obviously been a lot of great learning on the job because yeah. it's just gone from strength to strength. Yeah. I mean, I really think that the first two to three years were very much that thing of like you know the the duck or the swan is gliding on the surface and scrambling madly under the under the water um and i think it took us probably the first three years to actually really get on top of um of running things properly and we were very fortunate that we didn't hit too many um real uh challenges in that time that were in any way kind of existential because i'm not sure we would have been set up to cope with them um and also we were just fortunate that we had straight out of the gate our first production was sweet charity which was a massive hit and um really put us on the map and put us like at least two or three years ahead in terms of like being a part of the theater culture in sydney than we ever expected to be um, and then within that first year, another few shows that just really hit and really made its mark. And so, you know, the programming is what's, what's to, what's to um, thank for where we got to so quickly. Well, it's an amazing hothouse for musical theatre production, construction and development, because mm. as well as the, you know, the old staples, uh, mm. you foster new yeah. Australian works. So. Yeah, and that's obviously a big part of what we wanted to do. Um, you know, musical theatre is, I mean, I guess you say primarily an American form. Um, and obviously there's those big, British musicals like the Les Mis, well, you know, French, British, whatever you want to call that, but, you know, the Andrew Lloyd Webbers and Blood Brothers and things like that. Um, and Australian musicals um, are much fewer and further between. 
And of course, there's been the big hits like Priscilla and Boy From Oz and Shout and those kinds of things. Um, and there is a history of Australian musical theatre that audiences today might not know about because one of the biggest problems is that um, they're not revived. So um, that's really the two things we want to do is make sure that we were reviving Australian musicals that didn't necessarily um, have the opportunity to be revived elsewhere, especially if the major theatre companies were not interested in, in reviving them, um, and also to develop new Australian musicals, which is... I'm not sure people realise an incredibly expensive and time-consuming thing to do, even for small-scale musicals. Now, for the interstate listener, or international in, <laughs> indeed, uh, describe the space, because it's a, a wonderfully intimate space. <laughs> so it's a little black box theatre. It's got 111 seats, um, and it's in a building that was originally constructed as like a... Um, civic hall so it's it wasn't constructed as a theater um and you can still see parts of it you know along the walls and on the floors the old kind of um wooden floors and things in the foyer i think it's the original floor from the civic hall so it was originally adapted decades ago relatively roughly um and certainly over and over the time that darlinghurst theater company were there they made various adjustments and then in the uh what is it five six years that we've been there um we've sort of slowly made various sort of upgrades to try and make it more um more theater like and make the sound better and all that kind of stuff but it's basically uh it's a it's a black box with a raked um seating bank of um, six and a half rows of seats 111 seats so it's incredibly intimate yeah and new toilets Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> which one has to be mindful of because the very first time I went into the mm-hmm. uh, the opposite yes. gender. Yes. Well, so uh, a year ago, I think we closed for a couple of months because, and thanks to the city of Sydney who made the upgrades to the bathrooms, and that's because, of course, when it was originally constructed as a civic hall in the sixties or early seventies. They thought, well, we'll need a lot of bathrooms for the gentlemen and not very many for the ladies because there won't be a lot of ladies involved in the civic business of the town. Um, and so that had been the case right up until a year ago um, when the city of Sydney um, very fortunately said we need to upgrade these bathrooms and also we need to swap the men's and the ladies so that um, you know there's more capacity for the stalls and the ladies. What it did mean, of course, is that, our, as you say, our regular audience members when they came back had to be very mindful they didn't automatically walk into the old bathroom. <laughs> Pre-programming. Yeah. Uh, how many shows would feature in a season? Um, we normally have maybe eight full-length seasons of musicals per year, maybe nine. Um, and then interspersed with that will be um, shows that play for maybe one week or two weeks. It might be a cabaret show or a smaller scale, um, not exactly a musical. Um, so, yeah, I would say eight or nine musical musicals in each year's season, plus a couple of other um anywhere from like two to five other kinds of shows that might be cabarets or similar and a subscription series for the first time this year uh last year was our first subscription season i think yeah 2019 yeah yeah 2020 of course uh looking to be a hell of a year for everybody Mm -hmm. how is this coronavirus affecting the hay well i mean like every um theater company you know it's been incredibly uh impactful um we've cancelled you know multiple shows um and you know as we speak we still don't know um when we'll be able to reopen so the impact is ongoing um it's a weird thing when you're you know your whole reason for existing is to present shows and bring in as many audiences as possible and you're not able to do that you're kind of like on hold not just in terms of operating but also it feels like you're on hold in terms of your reason for existing um, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Have, have you set the time when you're hoping to open again, or is it just sort of 
standing I mean, yes and no. I mean, currently we have cancelled three shows, um, but I, I think we're probably end up having to cancel more. Um, we well, hear at Melbourne Theatre Company have just cancelled their whole season. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. It's shocking. Yeah, and so, you know, we're in a position where we um, have cancelled a number of shows, and then you know, the ones after that are sort of TBC um, until we have any idea when we're going to be through this. Um, and we're just, yeah, we're just continuing to try and operate with the skeleton staff, do what we can to keep them occupied doing works to the theatre, which is helpful in a way. Um, and look at programming, you know, also, you know, before all this hit, we were already looking at programming for 2021. So, you know, there's various shows that we were supposed to do this year that will push to 2021. So, yeah, at the moment, we, as I say, as we speak, we're in a situation where because we don't have an understanding of the timeline mm. it's still slightly nebulous um but yeah it's it's a really weird thing because we're so conditioned to meet crises by saying let's all pull together and get get back on our feet and it's at the moment it's kind of like well no our responsibility at the moment is to not get back on our feet until you know until it's the right time to do so so and, and at times of great trauma like the depression and world wars it was a theater that flourished yeah because people wanted that escape but yeah. they, we can't even gather in public yeah it's a very strange very strange situation to say like we can't all get together and you know take comfort in you know being physically in each other's company and so yeah and we like every like everyone else we're sort of thinking about ways that we can continue to um operate in some way um that that doesn't involve you know putting on live performances we haven't made any decisions on that yet because it's just too early at this point um and you know we'll see we'll see how long things last but um certainly want to be able to be contributing to the art scene and you know a large part of our um of our mission aside from obviously putting on shows is you know developing developing work and helping to develop and nurture artists and so you know working out ways that we can continue to do that work while we're dark will obviously help us and help them as we as we move through so. let's get another plug in uh there was another podcast at the haze mm. which you mm-hmm. hosted and, mm. and spoke to various practitioners who were involved with shows yeah at the haze during yeah the season yeah mm. yeah so that was um uh, I hosted it for quite a while. It was hosted by Margaret Ferranti for a while as well. And, um, uh, yeah, it was just a, a really good way of plugging into all of the many amazing people that do come through our doors, um, whether they're performers or, um, you know, directors or other, other creatives, um, and just sitting them down, talking about the shows that they were doing at The Haze, but also talking about their careers more widely um, and just a really valuable resource for us to be able to um, put out on the internet for free for people to hear from, you know, these wonderful experienced people who were lucky to have had, you know, come through and work at The Haze. Well, The Haze, of course, a place where you've honed your skills as a writer and a producer and a director. Mm. And we'll talk about those roles a little bit later. I want to go back and talk about uh, Mr. Carroll oh. and where he's come from. Oh, God. Because when, when did you arrive in Australia? 2008. Right. And mm. had you been here on holiday and thought, I like the place, I want to go back? or Yes and no. I'd been here in 2002 when I was 21, backpacking with my sister. And um, we had some family in Australia. My great uncle had married an Australian back in the 60s. So we had a kind of a branch of our family that were here in Sydney. Um, and so when we came here backpacking, you know, we stayed with them. And so we had that slight, we had that connection. Um, but I'd only been here that one time. And that was my experience of it. I came in 2008 because... 
I was 27. I was working in television production in the UK. And um, so my friend Lisa Campbell, who's now Lisa Campbell, then Lisa Hewitt, she had moved out here because she'd been she'd been here on on a tour with the National Theatre Production and she'd met David Campbell and they'd fallen in love and were getting married. And so in 2008, they were getting married in November 2008. And so I made the decision that I'm going to take my working holiday visa and go out to Sydney for a while and I'll be there for their wedding and hang out and have a good time and maybe I'll maybe I'll get some TV work over there or maybe I'll uh, work in a bar for a while and we'll see how it goes and I'll just come back to London and pick up again because it's all contract work and television so um, that was my plan when I came out here like a lot of people I only meant to come for a short while and then um, I came here and loved it straight away um, and just a series of really fortunate things happened to me. Um, the primary of which was that David and Lisa had just started their own production company, Lucky's like Productions, to produce David's tours. And um, they very quickly needed someone to work with them. And I started doing some work with them. And he had just become the artistic director of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. And so there's a lot of work to do there. And um, essentially, I started working with them. And that quickly became a full-time thing. And they were able to sponsor me for a longer visa and... All these happy accidents. Yeah, it was a very, very fortunate. Right place, right time, right people. Yeah, very, very. So, fortunate. how did you meet Lisa? Were you your school friends? Or? We were at school together. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I've known her since I was eleven. I think we used to do school plays together. <laughs> <laughs> Name a couple. <laughs> uh, the first play we did was called Jack Spratt VC, which I don't think anyone will know. Um, and we did Tessa the D'Urbervilles. We did The Boyfriend. Um, what else did we do together? Oh, uh, Moliere, The Imaginary Invalid. So, yeah. Well, it's not a Classics. bad range of, of works there. <laughs> yeah. Um, the artistic influences in your childhood, were you taken to the theatre often by a, a lovely aunt or were there teachers at school which... Um, no lovely aunt taking me. Uh, we did, we went, as I said, we went with my, with my family. Um, we didn't go often, but we did go regularly. So we probably went once or twice a year to see something in the West End and they were very impactful for me. And, and as I said about Les Mis, we often would, you know, buy the uh, cast recording on cassette. We would listen to it a lot on car journeys and at home. So in that respect, even though I didn't see a huge amount of theatre live, the impact of it in my life was quite big. Did, did you have aspirations to work in theatre or... Um, Could you studied um, English and American literature mm, at uni? Yes, I did. Um, I didn't... I think I sort of briefly did around the ages of about 16 or 17, but I... Because I, my experience of it was really just through school plays. As an actor? You were the, as an yeah. actor, yeah. And so there was no opportunity at my school to do anything other than acting in the school plays. And so I thought that was really the only avenue. So I sort of thought about um, applying for drama school and things like that. But I just knew that I wasn't really a, a particularly great actor. Um you know, I was fine in school plays, but I knew that even even the people who were around me, people like Lisa, who did go to drama school and became a professional actor, I knew that I wasn't in the same league as them. And so I think I just sort of thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to leave it behind. And it wasn't until much later, it wasn't until I came to Australia that I actually came back around to exploring avenues of working in theatre in other ways. So working in TV for a while, you were mm. writing uh, quiz questions. Is that right for quiz programs? <laughs> That's how I started out. Yeah, so I had always wanted to work in television. That's how I, I think that was, you know, not not seeing any avenue in theatre. I think I thought that was the other the, the other place that drew me. And so I had done sort of work experience stints all through school and things like that. And then after I left university, I moved to London and I was applying for all sorts of jobs, you know, little like jobs as a runner for a couple of days. And, you know, of course, I wasn't getting anything. And then... 
bizarrely, I found this advertisement for a job as a question writer on the weakest link, and I applied for it. And part, you know, you had to fill in whatever form it was, and then I had to write, I think, twenty like questions, you know, example questions. And for whatever reason, I got an interview and managed to blag my way through that, and I got this job, and it was. Yeah, as a question writer, it was a researcher level job, so it was one above being a runner. And so I, I at the time, remember that, remember getting the phone call um, to say that I had the job, and it was just the most incredible because you know, I had no money. I was working a couple of shifts in a handbag shop uh, in Greenwich Market, and um, and it was a three month contract, which seemed like forever. And it was the money, which now I think about how much I was getting paid, and that was nothing. But the money was like, oh my God, I've made it. This is incredible. I'm making a living full time job in television. Um, so yeah, and I ended up doing it for six or seven months. Um, and it was kind of, it's one of those jobs that like, it's a pretty cool thing to have done. And I remember at the time, being like 22 years old, all the other question writers were much older. I think that's probably why I ended up getting the job. They wanted someone who was younger and more, knew more about like pop culture. And I remember at the time, you know, I was going out, you know, going out to nightclubs and stuff and meeting people and they'd be like, what do you do for a living? And I'd be like, I'd write questions for a TV quiz show. It's The Weakest Link. And they'd be like, oh my God. And people would think you're really intelligent. People would be like, you must you, be- You know Anne Robbins. Yes, yeah, that was the two things. One was like, what's Anne Robinson really like? And the thing was like, you must be so smart that that's your job. And I'm like, well, not really. If you think about the kind of questions they ask on, it doesn't involve like a extreme amount of knowledge. And it was mostly, it was also on season six by the time I joined the show. So my day was mostly trying to think up questions and then entering them into the old fashioned computer database to work out if they'd been asked before, which they almost certainly had been um, because, you know, they get through so many questions uh, every show. So all the kind of like, you know, what's the capital of Bolivia or, you know, like who was, you know, who was the prime minister during the second world war and all those kind of questions, they've all been asked long ago. So you have to try and come up with something that's original, but also can't be too difficult because it's a tea time quiz show. Um, it also can't be too current, so you can't say like who is the Home Secretary because it might have changed by the time um, by the time the program airs. So that was the main challenge of it was trying to find that sweet spot of something that was easy enough to go to air but hadn't already been asked. Was there a question back that you could refer to and say, "Has this question been asked before?" There was, yeah, there was a there was a computer database, a relatively sort of rudimentary computer database that you could put keywords into. But then you worked into uh, moved into casting. Yes. How do you cast quiz contestants? Um, is it you've got to look for someone who's not too bright? Or, uh, because I think of who wants to be a millionaire, and I think, my goodness, how did these people get on this show? Yeah, it's a bit of a sweet spot. It partly depends on the show. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you the process is a lot like um, casting actors in terms of you ask for submissions, and you go through the submissions, you invite people to audition, and we would travel around the country. Um, so when I was writing questions on The Weakest Link, over one side of the office was us question writers and over the other side of the office were the casting people and all of the other people my age and the people who were sort of outgoing and social like me were on the other side. And I was like, maybe I should be over there doing that. So yeah, we would we would just bring in all the submissions and do audition tours around the country. And yeah, you want people who are outgoing and likable, but not too, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, sort of people who are drawn to those kinds of things and they've, they've got this kind of slightly aggressively outgoing energy which is a bit unnerving and you just get to know the kind of people that come across well on television and as you say they have to be smart enough to be able to answer some of the questions but not like crazy super smart um, so that they would just wipe the floor with everyone else so yeah it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sweet spot and it's it's much harder than you think I, people I think have no idea the process the length of the process that people have gone through 
to be put on a television screen. I think people just assume that it's almost random members of the public, and it's not at all. Like the vast majority of people will get rejected because uh, a lot of people freeze up on, on camera, mm. or you know, they, they're just not capable of like interacting in that kind of environment. And it's an entertainment after all. They're yeah, absolutely. Got to be engaging. Yeah. So that um, that experience is giving you all sorts of skills, I guess, that are going to put you in good stead for your role as a producer when you move to Australia. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I was used to dealing with uh, people. I was used to sort of managing people, um, and um, like working out what's going to work, what's going to make an audience respond. I think so. Yeah, some transferable skills, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so direction, which hmm. is, you know, it's been, you know, you've been successful in those three fields, writing, producing and, and direction, but, but that seems to be your main focus at the moment. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd certainly have had a very unusual path to directing. I, you know, I've got a little bit of imposter syndrome because, you know, like most of my other kind of peers as directors who, you know, my friends who, um, who work on the same kind of level as me at the same kind of theater companies etc they normally either you know have trained as directors or they've been actors who've worked in industry and moved into directing and i had this very strange thing where i was producing and then decided that i wanted to direct and so i started to produce shows that i could direct myself and um and you know now i direct for other theater companies as well but yeah it's um i can't really explain how it happened i i never thought of myself as a frustrated director i didn't have thoughts of directing until um until i started producing theater and producing at the hayes um so your production company is one eyed man that's right yeah so so where did that name come from it's from a kurt vonnegut quote and i think it sort of uh it shows how um the imposter syndrome that i had because um i formed that company when i wanted to start producing things to direct myself and um the quote is something like um if you can do a half-assed job of anything in this world, you're a one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind. <laughs> and so I kind of like whenever I sort of thought, you know, but I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm any good at it and all this kind of thing. And I would think, well, actually, think about it. so much of the theatre that I see that's terrible. <laughs> Maybe I should be a little easier on myself and see what I can, you know, see yeah, what I can produce. So, yeah, that's where the name came from. So, Sideshow, your mm-hmm. first musical mm-hmm. which you directed. Yeah, um, Sideshow is a kind of a niche. Um, which is a polite way of saying flop musical um, was done on Broadway in the late nineties. It's it's about um, based on a true story of these conjoined twins, Siamese twins, they were called. But and written it, by the team that wrote Dreamgirls. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so Daisy and Violet Hilton, who were these real conjoined twins in the nineteen twenties and thirties, who rose from the world of the freak shows, you know, exhibited in freak shows as children and as they grew up, and um, but they were really talented and they were discovered. And went on to the legitimate vaudeville circuit. At one point, they were the highest-paid vaudeville performers in America. Um, and the, so the musical was done in the late '90s and flopped on Broadway, and then was revived again in 2014 or something, and completely rewritten and flopped again. <laughs> um, but it was it was a show that I had a real sort of like affinity for. I really loved the story and I loved the music, and um, it was a real thing of like this is a show I'd really like to see no one else is doing it so I have to sort of put my money where my mouth is and, and put it on well your, your musicals you know that opening number sets the scene in the world of the play and, mm. you know, what's the opening number there so bring on the freaks come look at the freaks come look at the freaks yes, yes. yeah <laughs> the um the musical's text is is not just dialogue it's also the language of song and mm-hmm. dance mm. how do you harness those three elements to to, to complement each other and, and engage an audience that's a, I mean, it's a really 
big part of the um, challenge of working on a musical and it's also something that's always disappointing when you watch a musical where those elements have not been um, joined up well. For me, not being a singer or a dancer, um, uh, there's two things about it. One is just kind of instinct. You have to use your directorial instinct um, for all parts of it. And so, and again, that's a lot of it is overcoming imposter syndrome where, you know, like if there's something about the choreography in a musical number that I'm not responding to, I have to sort of stop stop myself from stopping myself intervening because, you know, like I don't, might not know about choreography, but I, I know how I'm responding to as an audience member. But um, the biggest thing is making sure that you're working with an excellent musical director and an excellent choreographer. And um, those professional relationships are a massive part of being a director. And, you know, it's sort of a almost a cliche that... 95% of your work as a director is putting the team together so casting the show and putting together the rest of the creative team but it's really true that that is where if you get that right then um, you've got a much 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 better chance of putting, of putting a good show together Do you find collaboration easy? Because it would be an essential part of pulling a musical together Yeah I don't know if easy is the word I, I, again I think it depends on making sure you've got the right people and um, it, yes I guess, I guess it is easy when you're working with people who who you have a really good relationship with um, and who are on board with your vision for the show, um, which is a big part of it. Um, and I guess that's why we find uh, creatives working with a lot of the same people and mm, actors from show to show to show because they have that, that yeah. language that they all understand. Absolutely. I think it's something that's underestimated and I think, you know, it's certainly something that people in the industry like to complain about sometimes. Oh, mm. well, that person always works with that that choreographer or that person always works with those actors he puts them in everything and um i think they underestimate that i mean and of course it is also really important to always work with new people um and generally when i do a show i would like to work with a combination of some people who i have a really good existing relationship with and some other people who either maybe people that i've admired their work and always wanted to work with or people who you know walk into an audition and i've never seen them before and they you know exciting and new but it definitely is a massive part of it to be able to find creatives or actors who respond to your vision respond to the way you communicate and build things together um and i think as a director it's like you know improvisers you know and i love to work with people who do improv a lot of the actors i work with have come from that background um you know it's that sort of accept and build thing of like if i throw this idea at you then you know am i going to take that on board and respond to it and, and bring you something or am i going to say oh that's not what i was thinking i'm going to do something else and that works both ways you know when you throw something at an actor and they respond to it but also an actor throws something at you and as a director it's your responsibility not to say like oh no that's not what i was imagining at all to say like oh okay great let's work with that and that's one of the fun things about being in a rehearsal room and so when you find actors who you vibe with on that on that front then you want to keep working with them You've worked on a great range of musicals stylistically um, and from the periods in which they originated, from classic Broadway fair through to contemporary works and mm. shows like Sideshow and Gypsy, Spamalot, Once mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and An Act of God, which was a play. Yeah. But a show that had particularly large amount of success was Calamity Jane. Mm -hmm. I, I talked about that at the start of the episode. Let's talk about that a bit more and your process at work on it because it was a, a very original take mm. on an old favourite. Mm. Everybody had probably grown up with the Doris Day film, mm -hmm. perhaps not seen it on stage as such, but um, anybody that had loved the film went along to that show and found something very different. Yeah, and that, like like all successes, I think there was a series of strokes of good luck that contributed to that. Um, certainly, one of the biggest parts of it was working with Virginia Gay, who is who played Calamity Jane. She's an incredible collaborator, an incredible mind, and she had as much to do with. Um, the 
the way that that production evolved as I did or as anyone else did. Um, and also the fact that we first did it. So I, I knew Ginny and I wanted, really wanted to work with her and we were talking about shows that we could do together. And I initially said to her, what about Annie, get your gun? Um, which she didn't really know. And then we both looked at it and we were like, oh, it's kind of racist and not that feminist, actually. You know how sometimes you remember things and you're like, oh, yeah, what a fabulous character. And then you're like, oh, no, actually, oh, it's just a big Indian quite problematic. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, then it turned to Climate Jane. She said to me, what about Climate Jane? And I, and I had seen a production of the stage musical a few years earlier in the UK, a touring production, which I didn't like at all. And I'd specifically gone to see it because I thought, oh, you know, that's a great brand show, could be really fun. And I'd gone to see a production in the UK and gone, oh no, this show's not any good at all. So uh, I sort of said that to her and I said, well, okay, what about if we do it as a neglected musical, which is there's a program uh, at the Hayes called Neglected Musicals run by Michelle Guthrie. And the whole point of, of neglected musicals is let's take a show that isn't really done, which Climate Jane isn't, except for uh, by amateur companies. So, so can I say that stage production that you saw, so yes. it was very different to yeah. the film? It's a different book or... Because the score is, is lovely. Yeah, uh, no, it was. It's the same version that we ended up doing. Right. Um, so it's so the movie came first, yeah. and then the, it was a stage adaptation of the right. movie. Well, that's always problematic, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. And so it was just a very traditional kind of like touring proscenium march version of the show, and it was just kind of a bit corny and old fashioned. Didn't really. I didn't think it had anything to say. And so, but because I thought I loved the idea of Ginny playing the character, I said, why don't we do an neglected musicals presentation? And this is this is what they do: is they take shows that. Um, uh, maybe a bit old-fashioned, a bit out of date, um, aren't, don't really work for full-scale productions, but there's things about them that are fun or interesting, and you do one day's rehearsal, and it's a script-in-hand presentation. And so that's what we did, and um, Michelle Guthrie agreed to put it on that way. And we put together just a fun group of people, again, a lot of people from improv backgrounds and people that we knew would thrive in that environment. And we did. We ended up doing a, a week of presentations, so six presentations. And... It was really seeing seeing how Ginny uh, played the character in those presentations that made made me see how it could work. And the fact that these presentations were script in hand and you know the, the cast sit at the side of the stage when they're not on stage and there's a real sense of like, we're all getting together today to do Calamity Jane and we all know this is a presentation and we're going to do it here, we've got the script and we're going to bring the story to life. And the audience is such a part of that. Um, and that's that's where the idea of doing it as we did came from, which is that the audience were a part of the show, the audience were the patrons of the Golden Garter Saloon, and that there was a sense of um, sort of comment around everything that we did. And that's a really difficult thing to pull off. And, you know, again, I just got to give credit to Virginia for the way that she was able to absolutely maintain the truth of the character the whole time and create this character that you totally believed in while at the same time acknowledging that it was a, that it was a show, acknowledging that they were audience members. Um, and the production still being very respectful to the yes. original material. Yes, and yeah. that, that was that was the, the biggest thing for us is that we didn't want to be seen to ever be kind of like going, oh, look at this show over here. Well, it's a bit yeah. crap, isn't it? Yeah. Like that we loved the character and we, and we also like, again, with Ginny doing a lot of dramaturgical work on... Um, certain parts of the show and able to kind of really massage certain uh, moments in the show which could have uh, taken away the power of Calamity and make allow them to maintain her um, her agency and her kind of like uh, role at the centre of the show. Um, so we were always really respectful of that and 
that's one of the best things about it is that you know people who love the movie which is so many of us um, would come and see the show and they'd see something completely different but they'd love it just as much because the journey of the show and the heart of the character was still there right as well as Virginia there was a, a terrific cast of actors with mm. Sheridan Harbridge and mm-hmm. Anthony Gooley and, mm-hmm. and Nigel O'Brien as your that's MD right. and all yeah. that sort of yeah. thing so um, they they also played crucial points in making that show a success oh and absolutely so yeah I mean obviously I give Ginny uh, so much credit because not just as a central role but also her role in sort of developing the production but yeah, there was not a weak link. I mean, only, there was only seven actors plus Nigel, the MD, who was also also an actor, so eight. Um, uh, and so they played all of the roles. And again, that only became what it was because in rehearsal, all of them entered into the spirit of what we were doing and were able to make these sort of wild offers and, you know, like accepting b- very strange challenges. And also that they were all... In our very short rehearsal period, they were all prepared to take that chance. And we'd say, oh, at this point, we'll do this thing and we'll get an audience member up and they'll do that. And then and we'll do this thing and we'll get the audience to do such and such. And there was so few times where people sort of said, but what happens if what happens if the audience member doesn't do that? You know, and that they were able to say, OK, well, when it gets in front of an audience, we're going to take the risk that this will work. And it did because when actors have the confidence to do it and say, like, this is what needs to happen, I'm going to make it happen. Um, that's, and that's such a joyful thing for an audience to be a part of when they can see that they're an essential part of the show. And you also had that great veteran of stage performance, Tony Taylor. Yes. Who, you know. uh, he was just wonderful, like wonderful, wonderful human being and an incredible actor. And it was really important to us to have that kind of link to um, that sort of the older styles of shows that um, happened at Nimrod back in the 70s and um, well, through the Tilbury and that kind of vintage, um, which Tony really brought. Um, and, and I think because, you know, like we weren't, although we felt like we were doing something that was fresh, you know, there's no new ideas. And we knew that what we were doing was building on elements of traditions that have existed for a long time. And Tony really brought that. And um, yeah, we were really fortunate. He'd been over in living in New York with Tony Sheldon, his partner, for quite a few years. And he had just come back to Australia. And I, I'd never met him, but I, I heard that he was back in Australia. And I just was like, please can I meet with you and talk to you about this production and god bless him you know he was like this sounds like a totally bizarre idea but why not let's do it mm-hmm. I, I'd originally written that there were elements of musical in review but mm. uh, yeah we get back to that original discussion of pantomime yeah yeah, it was yeah. very much um, yeah immersive experience for the uh, for the audience absolutely and I think that I think probably my experience of watching Panto as a kid definitely made me less fearful about that working about the audience being prepared to get involved and about it making sense as a form i think it was a little bit of naivety on my part just be like oh sure well this is why not we can do this and you know fortunately um australian audiences got involved calamity is an extraordinary character from history yeah are you familiar with the portrayal in deadwood yes absolutely yeah <laughs> a very different yes. calamity James. well and but it was very helpful both Ginny and i had seen deadwood and it was very helpful to have that you know really uh, different, well, very different from Doris very, Day. Yeah, very masculine. Yeah, uh, a drinker. Yeah, yeah. Swear. Yeah, swearing. and that was a big part of a uh, big influence on our interpretation of it too. We decided very early on that um, our calamity Jane did drink, um, even though in the script of the musical she just drinks sarsaparilla, um, and we had Jenny drinking whiskey throughout. And yeah, that kind of the mask energy of that was a, was a big influence. Yeah, um, you're off to do another. Western theme mm-hmm. at the end of the year at Black Swan Theatre Company in Perth, Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. How are you feeling about touching? It's such a, a staple of the musical canon, that breathing new life into um, mm-hmm. to an old favourite for a contemporary audience. Well, 
uh, I feel excited about it. And I think, you know, like I, I, I had pitched Oklahoma to them actually quite a while back now. It'd be two years since I actually first had a conversation with Claire, uh, Claire Watson over there. Um, and, um, you know, I, even though I, I love musicals and I kind of live and breathe them and I, you know, they're a massive part of my life. The number of musicals that I actually want to approach as a director is relatively few. I think there has to be something about a show that you think, oh, this is a particular thing that I see about this show that I haven't necessarily seen explored before or, you know, there's just something that makes me want to direct it as opposed to just like, oh, I love this show, let's all do it for fun. And Oklahoma was one of those shows that I always thought was... Um, I, I, when I'd seen it before, it always seemed like uh, the characters were portrayed as sort of down home, good old fashioned, like American, quite conservative folk. And when I looked at the story, I thought, well, these are all outsiders. You know, they're living in that climate territory. They're not part of the of the uh, federated United States. Um, they're people who were living in a land that's that's um, relatively lawless. Um, you know, you've got um, Laurie and Aunt Ella, who are two women running a farm. Um, you know, Curly is a sort of a wandering cowman and actually they're people who are kind of outsiders and weirdos and like people who've left their own communities, which at that time was a, was a huge thing to do. Not to mention poor Judd Fry. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, this is the thing, but this is the way that I saw it was that, you know, Judd is always seen as this sort of outsider and I thought, well, what if Judd represents more the kind of um, the more conservative uh, world of, of America and it's everyone else who are outsiders so obviously then he is kind of the outsider he's the outsider in a community of outsiders representing conservatism so that's kind of that's kind of the approach that I um, had to it and that's that's where the, the production will sort of evolve from so how do you it sounds like you've done a lot of preparation mm-hmm. already but do you go back to the original source material you know the green grow the lilacs mm-hmm. that original play yeah absolutely definitely is that, can, is that easy to access uh, well uh, yeah it was just order I was able to order one oh, online right, a copy right. online yeah, it came over from the UK I think but um, yes absolutely I do that and you know so many musicals are based either on existing source material or they're based on real people um, and so that's always really useful and I that's that's the period that I'm in at the moment with Oklahoma and it's always a really fun period just reading as much as possible about um, yeah, reading the original source material I've just been reading a book um, about the development of Oklahoma um, so just trying to sort of absorb as much information as possible and then of course reading about the real time and the real period um, and the real place um, and that's always really useful and really interesting and you kind of just have to take what you find interesting and put the rest to one side so when we're doing Gypsy for example you know reading uh, the book Gypsy which was Gypsy Rosalie's memoir um, and other books about Gypsy and her family was really interesting um, but you also have to acknowledge that what you're creating is your is your own world and so you take things from those books that are useful but if there's parts of them that don't quite match up to the story you're telling you don't have to use them you don't necessarily you know put something on stage it's um deliberately untrue but it's all about highlighting certain things and emphasizing certain things what's your rehearsal room like um probably sometimes a little more chaotic than it should be uh it's always good to work with a really good stage manager who can keep everyone in line because i think you know as i said i i love to have a really playful uh creative energy uh, which sounds obvious but actually i think a lot of uh, rehearsal rooms especially for musicals are not like that um it's always a bit of a contrast between um music rehearsals and choreography rehearsals compared to the um scene work because uh you know with choreography 
there can be an element of sort of input from the performers, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, this is what we, on this on this count we do this, and you know, on this count we do this, and same with music, it's like, okay, we sing that for this number of counts, and then we cut it off. Um, whereas with the character work, it's a lot more kind of uh, just sort of malleable, and you know, like see what happens, and maybe it changes over the rehearsal period. Um, so yeah, I like to get up on our feet um, really early. Um, and just kind of throw things around and try and latch onto things and build on things. Um, and often what I would do, which it's not really ever, it's not really thought through, but it's worked on a number of occasions is that we'll get on our feet quite early and we'll do work on the scene. And then maybe in like week three of rehearsals, we'll sit down at the table and scenes we've already been working at kind of the opposite way around from how a lot of directors do it, go back to the table when we've got an idea of like how the scene's shaping up and then start to drill down and like really look at the individual lines and and uh, shape those, sort of nail them down a little bit more, nail down the rhythm of the scenes a little more when we've already got an idea of how we want them to play out. So, yeah. Do you find it easy to, to hand the show over to the actors and the, and the crew on opening night and, and walk away? Or? Um, no. No, I don't find it easy. <laughs> I mean, you've just birthed a child, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I think, I don't think anyone finds it easy. Um, and it's okay to not find it easy, but you've got to, as long as you do it, you know. And I think I certainly um, I certainly will sit there on opening night very anxious because as a director you have absolutely no control on what goes on on stage and you think, oh God, I just hope something doesn't go terribly wrong, you know. Um, and I will continue to give notes through the season as well to performers, which um, a lot of performers love. And especially, again, I think there's a there's a thread that the t- type of performers I love to work with who um, really respond to that and like that because it keeps the shows live. But it's also has to be the certain the right kinds of notes as well. Yeah. Um, and you've got you've got to it's that thin to, line of still having encouragement and yeah. support. You've got to let the show kind of game. breathe and yeah. live. And and also you're not there every single night. So you're not seeing what, how things are developing or why things are developing. And sometimes during something like Calamity Jane that ran on and off for several years and we did about 150 performances and I would come and check in and I would, um, you know, because of my relationship with the actors, I would say to them like, oh, you know, this bit here, um, this thing has started to happen and I'm not really sure if that's helping because X, Y, and Z. And often they'd say, absolutely got it, no problem. Or sometimes they'd say, oh, yeah, the reason that's happening is because we found that this was happening or the audience would do such and such. And sometimes I'd be like, okay, got it, no problem at all. Or I'd say, oh, okay, I understand that. My issue is that this thing is happening. So maybe we can try, you know, so it's always sort of a combination and a collaboration. Um, but I do think that you know, I mean, you know, a big long-running commercial show will always have a resident director, um, but their job is normally just to try and keep pulling everyone back to the way that the show was on opening night. Yeah. Whereas I think that the advantage of the director who's created the production with the actors coming in is that you can say, okay, this is how. Or you can say, sometimes you'll come in and say, I love that new thing you're doing. It's awesome, great, yeah. keep it. Build new, build new stuff during the yeah, run, yeah. So yeah. Have you got a show that you would like to get your hands on one day? <sighs> Yeah, of course. I mean, look, it's funny because my answer to that was always Gypsy, and now I've done done it, and then it was Oklahoma, which I'm now doing. Um, So um, there's there's quite a few shows. I think the one that I have had in my mind for quite a while now, which I keep turning over. Actually, there's there's actually there's two, but the one the one that is in the forefront of my mind at the moment is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes which I think is another show that um, is kind of 
underestimated in terms of um I think we think of it wrongly. And that's kind of often how I approach these shows. I think everyone thinks of this show wrongly. I want to do it because I think we should be thinking about it this way. Um, and often for me, with shows that are based around female characters, it's around the sort of the, the strength and agency of those characters that I feel has been underplayed. And that was certainly the case with Calamity Jane. And I think with Gentleman Fur Blondes, very different uh, character uh, characters. But uh, because partly of the Marilyn Monroe, Jane Russell movie, we think of those characters, and especially Lorelei, as being kind of like ditzy blondes. Um, who are only interested in, um, in you know, like shiny diamonds and, and rich husbands. And I think there's a lot more depth to it than that, um, a lot of which comes to the original novel. Um, so that's a show that I would love to do um, and just kind of frame it a little differently and show those characters differently. And bizarrely, the film, you know, Marilyn Monroe playing with Laurel I. Lee in the original stage production, it was. Carol, Carol Channing. Channing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have an opening night ritual, some... Are you superstitious in the theatre? Do you? Um... I'm not superstitious, um, but I do think the rituals are important. I think the rituals are especially important for the actors and the show crew because anytime you're doing something over and over again and you have to deliver the same thing every night, I do think it's just psychologically helpful for them. So, uh, I so because I'm not there every night, that's not necessarily something that I'm involved with. But what I do try and do is during um like before the first preview or before the opening night is just make sure that we have a moment where we can all be together be still because of course it's always chaotic it's always like oh god we haven't done this thing okay what are we okay we're doing plan b for this because it's not ready yet so this is what we're going to do tonight and there's a lot of that kind of stuff especially during previews so just have a moment where we all gather together on stage and just like be with each other even if it's only for like one minute and just say okay let's just bring our minds back to what's important here which is the storytelling and you know like yes okay this thing might not be ready yes we're not sure how this thing's going to go but just remember it's all about the storytelling and so i always try and have that moment um at least before the first preview and on opening night but often like during the during the preview period and even during the run sometimes if i think we need to bring brought back to that it's such a simple note but it is actually incredibly useful sometimes for people who have so much on their mind both technically and in terms of you know their roles to say What's important here is that we tell this story to the audience and that you are getting across the beats of the story, the information that they need to hear, you know, like just simple things like, you know, when you say that line and you say that person's name, that's the first time the audience has heard that person's name and it's really important in the show. So you need to really make sure we hear that name, you know, like it's really simple things like that are often the things that you have to just bring people back to when plotting the story yeah yeah hitting the points yeah yeah so i always try and that's as much of a ritual they have is just to get everyone together and say okay guys just remember we're telling the story tonight you've got this you're awesome let's do it um because if i think if performers walk walk on stage with a kind of a scattered energy where they think about what's been going on in their day or they're just concerned about their own thing it's it really has an effect on the show you have to come on and work as an ensemble do you read reviews of your shows? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I do. And I think that's probably because I've been a producer longer than I've been a director. And often when I'm directing, I'm also producing. I think as a producer, you have to be across that because it can be a really great marketing tool if you get good reviews. Um, but also you just have to be aware. Like if a show is getting terrible reviews, then you um, you have to be aware of it partly because it can have an impact on the box office and your strategy, but also because you have to make sure that you're keeping... Um, your casting creatives and crew buoyant it's a really tricky thing to line to walk sometimes because a lot of them don't read reviews but you know a lot of them do and so to make if, if a show is having negative reviews or even has had one negative review or has had positive reviews but there's been a couple of negative comments about one actor for example or one element of the show 
making sure that you are supporting and uh, making that person feel valued without making them feel picked out or patronized or even like I say sometimes they not might not even be aware of it you don't know if they're aware you don't know if they've read the reviews you don't want to say mm, did you read that review <laughs> so um so yes I do read them and um I find that I I find a lot of them really interesting and often I will read review and be like that's a really good point and, you know sometimes there might be uh, a criticism of the show I think yeah that's fair that's, and you might even implement it um but um and I also find sometimes that it's only when I read reviews that they often articulate to me what the show, what the show what I've done with the show that I kind of have known that I'm doing, but I haven't articulated it in that way. Like, oh yeah, this production is about that. Like, I was thinking I was using these words, but actually, yeah, that's a really good way of summarising it. And a really good critic, you know, coming to it with fresh eyes can do that. So it's often really interesting. Now, we already know, but I'm, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are about to realise why the arts are important to a community. Mm. Why would you say the arts are important to a community? I just think we've got a really deep-rooted um, evolutionary um, reaction to storytelling. Like, that's how we understand the world. And often we don't realise it in that way. But, you know, when we, um, when we watch the news or, you know, like we're... Uh, interacting with family members or everyone else we're telling ourselves stories and that's why sometimes there's division because we tell ourselves a certain story about an event and someone else is telling themselves a, dif a different story and uh, we don't realise we're doing it so to us it just looks like fact and that's why we clash and I think to bring people together in a shared story and telling a story about the world telling a story about certain characters that you don't realise it but what you're doing is learning something about yourself learning something about your own life learning something about your own personality learning something about the other people in your life and I, I think that that is you know and all art really is storytelling whether it's something like theatre or or you know writing a novel which you know more kind of literal storytelling um, but you know like other kinds of art like painting and dance and you know all that kind of stuff it's all storytelling and um, we need that in order to understand the world so yeah well it's great to see artists and performers and companies internationally taking to online mm -hmm. and, and screening um, performances and, yeah. and inventing new ways to to reach out during this, um, this pandemic yeah i might stress also to the listener that we have kept uh, well and truly 1.52 meters absolutely away from each other yes. so um, yeah <laughs> richard thank you so much for for the conversation today it's been terrific thank you and to catch up with you and, and learn a bit more about you so um all the best with the next few months. Thank you. And there you go. So if you happen to be in Perth in November, December, look out for Oklahoma, playing at the Black Swan Theatre Company and directed by my guest today, Richard Carroll. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. And occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in just for good measure and good behaviour. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends, your neighbours, your family, the occasional pet. Thanks for that. It's much appreciated. But you couldn't go just one step further, could you? Just for an old friend? It would be just spectacular if you could take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. You know, something like five stars. Very, very good. You can do this through the podcast iTunes app. Did I sound desperate then? Where you probably accessed this episode. It helps to get the word of the podcast shared and received. As always, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to another episode of Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well 
catch you next time.